Hello, listeners, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our programme and the creator of this series. Our guest on this episode, Charlotte Fox Webber, is a leading London-based psychotherapist whose debut book, What We Want, takes us on a journey into human desire. It's both a fly-on-the-wall look at what binds us and a practical toolkit for living well. To join Hannah McInnes to tell us more. I think the most important or the, the question that just immediately leaps out is it is a journey through 12 of our deepest desires, what we want. Everyone has so many different desires and wants. How did you decide 12? There was something about setting a limitation. So it's not meant to be a kind of recipe for how to find your 12 definite desires and that's it. You're never going to come up with anything that isn't on that list. But I think having a framework for discussing desire is is a really important beginning because I think we need to be provoked and have a kind of encouraging aim to think about and then have a limitation at the same time. So so putting it out there, something like power, something like wanting to win, it sets up a kind of contained space for exploration. So when you wrote the book or when you think of it now, would you say it's a book for everyone to read or do you have a certain reader in mind? Well, I think it's for the restless reader, for the kind of restless person who feels preoccupied with uncertainty about what matters, who who maybe overthinks and who questions and changes. And yeah, pretty much anyone who wants to be curious about what it means to be alive and kind of examine meaning. And, and I mean, you say that the book is not just to explore, to, but to help the reader, you address them in the introduction, get in touch with your own depths. And so that, that's your hope for the book. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that. I think that we are all really fascinating and we forget to be fascinated. We forget to be kind of astonished by how intricate and peculiar and contradictory our minds can be. Again, the reason I, I kind of discovered those 12 desires, discovered sounds extremely grandiose, but uncovered was that I kept on kind of witnessing the same themes emerge again and again. So however the person was dressed in therapy, however they were kind of socialized, these these similar interesting contradictions came out. So I think I think that we can be really interested with ourselves. And and it's not the same as being kind of narcissistic, but actually being curious. And you draw from very personal experience, personal reflections. Was there a sense in which you were working out your own feelings and thoughts and wants and desires? Because before you go into the stories, you explore in this very personal style these wants and desires. And it's as if perhaps I wonder you're sort of working things out a little bit for yourself. Certainly. I'm sure that I come into things more than I realize, but I try to pay attention to that and be honest about it and and not impose my own narrative on whatever it is I'm experiencing. But but I'm always a work in progress and it's not as if I've arrived. And, and I don't think anyone fully arrives at absolute fulfillment anyway. You say um, one of the reasons that you came to write this was because you said, I spent years in therapy waiting for therapists to ask me about my big wants. No one ever did. So why didn't they? And why is it in your mind and as it transpires from reading the book so important to ask that question? Well, 
I think it's interesting that we are so demanding, but we're we're really circumspect about desire. And I think that begins with language where we are direct at first. So a toddler will say, I want milk. And that's great because the toddler can communicate and we know what's going on. But by four or five, if someone says, I want milk, it's it's kind of rude. It's too much. And it's better to say, I would like, or could I please have? And and then at the same time, there's nothing bolder than someone saying, I want you. It's a lot better than I like you. So I mean, it's kind of figuring out those rules of desire and then those limitations. And I think we're constantly intrigued by those lines. I mean, the limitations come from society, don't they? You say we're socialized to perform and conceal desires. We pretend to want the, these are your words, appropriate things in the right way. We banish desires we're not supposed to have. And we put our secret wants into a kind of psychological storage facility of our unlived lives. Has society always done this? Or why does it, why does it force us to not be able to be liberal and expressive with our wants? I think it would be somewhat frightening if we were nothing but kind of uncensored because we would be uncivilized. We would be killing each other and having sex with everyone. And it would be really just obscene. But I think that we are always adjusting the rules and we're not we're not clear. And we, we don't say what we mean. And no can mean yes and yes can be no. And I mean, I found myself in a situation earlier today where I had said yes to something, but I really meant no. And I think that whatever culture you're from, of course, there are cultural influences and timing affects things. But I think we've never solved the problem of desire. It's always been an issue since Adam and Eve, really. Do you think that um, in order to really understand our wants, we need to have therapy? I mean, it strikes me that these um, people that you draw on through their conversations with you are incredibly um, have such an extraordinary self-knowledge and you work through extraordinary things your conversations are deep and intense and they do understand where they're lacking and what they want does that only really come out when you're with a therapist I don't ever want to be so grandiose that I think that therapy is the only way to make life better I think it's usually a number of factors and therapy can help but it can also be a kind of it, it can also not help because that goes on all the time too. I think, I think it's about confronting yourself in a safe space and finding a way to not delay, to kind of interrogate whatever is there. And that might mean looking at art. It might mean being in nature. It might mean journaling, but really just insisting that you kind of see the truth in some way, however unsightly. You go through these 12, um, we probably won't be able to get through them all, and that's not the aim, because people will be able to read about it, and people will take such different parts, I imagine, from the chapters and from the different desires but uh, and wants. But you, you have a chapter about desire, and it strikes me, one of the first things you write is that desire and fear are closely related. I wonder if you could elaborate upon that. Yes. I mean, think about anything that you have really wanted in your life, whether it's to sleep with someone or pursue a career or go on a trip, whatever it is, have a baby. There is always going to be something terrifying about going for that thing. And actually, love is a huge one as well. Like if you want intimacy, if you want a close relationship, it it comes at a cost because 
you're vulnerable to loss. You're vulnerable to being messed around, to losing what you want and losing what you have. And we're so afraid of disappointment. We're so afraid of discovering that actually we can't get what we want, that we we don't even articulate it, if that makes any sense. Like rather than go there, we we wait for a miracle and can just sit on the sidelines waiting for life to happen. And I think I think that facing disappointment can actually be a big relief. So if you kind of allow for the fear, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have to always do what you're afraid of either. Because I think I think fear can be a useful signal. But sometimes, like let's say you want to sleep with someone. I keep looking at you when I say this, but let's say you want to sleep with someone who's very inappropriate, who is off limits, who you really should not sleep with, like your boss. And there are all sorts of consequences if you do. I think that paying attention to that fear is actually really helpful. So even if you have the desire, like look at the conflict. I think we end up just being so freaked out by the conflict that like we just avoid the whole thing and then we act out and and pick a side. And I think that tension is actually really interesting. You said that pay attention and attention is one of the wants that you write about. Mm. Um, And it's a really interesting uh, chapter, which is attention both that we want attention but also you write about the great importance of paying attention which you keep referring to so paying attention to what's going on around you this is how you get in touch with all your wants and 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 your sort of inner self paying attention you call it a kind of energetic attitude and you say at the end of that don't get used to being alive be astonished by what you see and so so that attention it's two things there though isn't it one we want attention, and two, we need to pay attention. Or do they link up? I think they link up. And I mean, you have paid attention to my book. It's it's so connecting when someone pays attention. It's a real gesture that's kind, I think. And, and there's something really insulting about that feeling of disconnect when someone can't be bothered to pay attention. And I think it's often ordinary, so it's just having the observations and and being present, but it's a gift. So I think that when people want attention, they get very kind of absorbed with their own experience where they can forget that there's a world. They're kind of solipsistic in their misery. And paying attention, I suppose, also feeds in. Would you say that all your wants sort of feed in in so many ways and that they're all contradictory and they all... And um, they all align. Is there a link between them before I come to understanding? I mean, links, threads, and then conflicts. Like we never get there. I think. I think thinking about the stars is a helpful format because the word desire comes from the stars, and there's always that space between. There's always a distance, so it's a kind of forever pursuit. And one of them is understanding. And again, it's this sort of conflicting, you know, nuanced idea of understanding, understanding who you are. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you to sort of quite interested to hear your thoughts on this because it's it's much easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And none of us, you know, we, well, some people might feel that they're very um, kind of confidently in touch with who they are but you say um, each of us has this own sense of thisness mm. when you understand yourself well enough you can be much more flexible when it comes to embracing change so it feels a bit like a vicious circle to me because you can't embrace change when you don't sort of know yourself well but you also don't know yourself well when you don't embrace change and you get stuck in a sort of a spiral 
Yes. And I think that I aim for understanding rather than knowledge, like rather than that is definitely the case and nothing else. People get really fixated by people. I mean, myself as well, of course, but like, is it this or is it that? Am I, am I greedy or am I a good person? And you're both like, it, I keep looking at you again, feeling bad saying you, but no one else. I, you unfortunately to look at. I, I think that kind of acknowledging those contradictions, they don't have to go away. It's not something that has to be fixed. So thisness, it is contradictory because it I mean, you're kind of anchored in your sense of self. It's not like you arrive at some crystal clear definition of you and that can never ever be altered in any way. But it's a kind of trust that you can you can adapt and you can be flexible and you can have a sense of your core values. I think that your values can change over time, of course, and your priorities, but they're going to be a little bit kind of slower going. So your desires might come and go all the time throughout the day, like where you're negotiating which ones matter and feeling one way and then feeling another way. I think that your core values are not going to change dramatically without a kind of slower awareness. So I think that's the part you can trust and kind of call on when you're when you're in those dilemmas. And how do you get in touch with those and, and the ones that you know that aren't changing and therefore become, I suppose, what you're saying is, you know, more decisive. I mean, I think sort of indecision comes from not knowing what you want, of course. That's very obvious. But reading your book, I'm struck by just how frequent a thing that is that you know so you're frequent. decisive because you just can't get in touch with what it is you want. And in order to get over that, you need to understand yourself better. Right. It's a hard thing to do is what I'm getting at. I think go for something clumsy and expect that it's not going to be perfect. Because if you think that you have to have it figured out before you can proceed, forget it. Because life will change, you'll change. Like it, There's always a kind of motion happening. And I think we're really afraid of making a mess, of making mistakes. And then we get hesitant and waiting for life to happen is making a choice. It, it, it is kind of allowing for something to play out. So I think knowing that you can adjust and we get there by asking ourselves a question, which might sound really obvious, but I mean, in my case, I never asked the basic questions like, why am I at this job? What do I really want? Do I want to advance at this job? Do I want to earn money? Do I want to have power, like all of the difficult, weird questions and kind of just paying attention to that and then seeing what emerges. I think we often do have a sense of where we are. Power is one of the other wants that you write about. Again, it's a balance like it is with all of them. Hmm. And some people might listen to this and say, I, I don't want power. I, I'm, I'm happy, you know, yeah. I'm happy where I am or power is not something that I've thought about. Mm. But when you read your book, you think, okay, well, actually what we all do want is what you say to aim for, a, a, a power in moderation. Yeah, I like dosages and I like the idea that any of these desires is possible in a dosage. Like freedom is another one where we talk ourselves out of it because we're so hyperbolic in our sense of what it would mean. Like it would mean letting loose. It would mean quitting your job and running away from your family and just being in the mountains. But I mean, you could try having freedom just for five minutes. And I think sometimes allowing for those small bites can can open something up. Yeah, I found that really interesting in the freedom part where you say we often sacrifice um, one for the other. We think it's either or. 
Mm. Um, so when you write about these wants, it's not about going, well, I either have freedom or I choose the opposite, which is actually security. Mm. So actually, you, you know, you chose freedom as a want. You didn't choose security, safety, and that feeling of, of, of being safe, which many th- people think is the opposite to being free and footloose. Mm. Right. I mean, I think safety does come into some of the desires in different ways. Safety and excitement are the backdrop of a lot of those desires. And including winning, like sometimes you don't go for winning something because you might feel unsafe if you if you expose yourself to the next level. So you stay at a low level job rather than aiming higher and potentially feeling unsettled, feeling unsafe. So yeah, it's interesting to think about the safetyism and how how that comes in. But I, I think we want both. You do say that to win, again, another chapter, to win is a universal human want, do you think? Again, there aren't those people who are sort of happy just not to win. I don't really believe that because I I pretended to myself that I wasn't competitive because I grew up in Connecticut and I didn't do team sports and I wasn't overtly competitive in those ways. But oh my God, in other ways, like in in completely idiosyncratic ways as well. Like I think that rivalries can can be about knowledge. It can be about showing off who's more erudite, like or who is more fun. Like couples get competitive about who's suffering more. It, the misery competition is a real thing, and very often we're kind of trying to win something that we we don't necessarily really want to win. So. I think that interrogating that one is really helpful because you can discover that actually you're playing a game that is horrible and that is not rewarding. So like wanting to win with your mother-in-law, that, that sort of thing. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. So you address that one in the sense to say this is something that we have, um, you know, think about it and work out how to make your attitude to winning more, more balanced. Yes, I mean, I'm not saying like team spirit at, at the end, am I? I mean, I hope not. Um, I think it's really interesting that Freud and Adler had like major frenemyship and they were vicious about each other and it never got resolved. And it's not just that they were so kind of mean spirited, but they had this fight in front of the world. Like they never even covered it up. And it's just astonishing that we don't kind of call it out more in ourselves. So I think sometimes therapy is a space for for naming what it's really hard to name. And I mean, I wouldn't just set the agenda if it wasn't at all relevant, but like when someone is talking about all the reasons they're not wanting something or there are little clues that people will drop where I, I think it's helpful to kind of just provoke discussion and then see if it's 
possible that you want something that isn't so pretty and that isn't necessarily nice. I mean, you you fight in that uh, idea about to win mm. and the thinking of how much we want to win, even though we might pretend that we don't, as you said about yourself. And another thing we sort of play down, your book makes me realise we, we play down a lot of our kind of um, innate feelings in society. Um, ego is something that um, oh. you, know, you talk about and you say in therapy particularly, it can be this big breakthrough where people just suddenly stop this false modesty and sort of start being happy with singing their own praises. Yeah, I loved it when I, this client of mine said, I, I love myself and it wasn't, it wasn't unbearable. I mean, she just actually allowed for it. And I do think that we wince because I mean, I'm wincing at myself for talking about my book. It, it's really, it's really awkward. And we have been socialized in weird ways. So we're not supposed to kind of show our ego, but then we're supposed to be really confident and we're supposed to have good self-esteem and we're confused basically. And, and then we get confused internally as well, where we start believing our own hype. Do you think uh, we're getting better at this? Society is encouraging people to be more open, more able to express their own, um, you know, to be less false modest. And social media, for all its ills, does help people to shout more about what they've done and to be more proud of themselves. I, I am not so sure because I think boasting is not necessarily the same thing as having a healthy ego. Having a healthy ego might mean keeping it a secret to yourself, but knowing that actually that's where you are. So that's probably a more wholesome. More wholesome, but also, I mean, I think knowing what you're keeping private is a really okay thing. Like you don't necessarily have to tell the world everything, but you can know what it is you're holding back and kind of being onto yourself. It's like you're in cahoots with yourself. So I think I think that can be very grounding and it can help you make sense of yourself in the story that you tell just internally. That's what one of your clients says to you in the books. Uh, they say that they are in cahoots with themselves. You write um, very, very detailed discussions that you've had with them and about their lives. Mm. Does that feel, um, how much of therapy should sort of stay private? Did you discuss it with them that they were going into the books? I agonized over this issue. I, I spoke to lots of people about it. I was so tormented about getting it wrong. I kind of imagined and assumed that I would be disastrous no matter what, because I thought if if I overly fictionalized, then I would lose the authenticity, which is really what I wanted to do. I wanted to write about how therapy really is, not kind of tie it up with a bow. But then on the other hand, of course, I, how, how difficult to get consent from clients or, or former clients, because I'm not sure I totally believe in that. Like, what if someone says yes, but then 10 years later feels differently? And we say yes for the wrong reasons. So I decided after thinking it through that I could write about the themes and write different stories, but just reconstitute and and change the details enough so that it's it's not going to be revealing. But at the same time, it feels true. It feels like it has veracity. Yeah, Absolutely. I could ask you so much more about the sort of relationship um, side of things. You give so many extraordinary insights into what it is to be a therapist, those relationships you have and the sort of the good ones and the difficulties. But I want to move back into, you know, for people 
uh, watching to sort of get, get more of an understanding, you know, continue where we were about how to act on these wants and desires and to recognise them. I think it's really important before we go on to to ask you about how gender fits into this, because um, I'm sure, you know, your clients are, are both male and female and the book is for everyone. But when it comes to the societal conditioning, mm. it does feel like that is in most of these respects stronger for women to be told, you know, what we should and shouldn't want, potentially, you know, how what we can act on and what we can't. Or don't think about it at all. Yeah. I mean, I think we we self-abnegate when... I think Simone de Beauvoir was right when she said that women are not taught to prioritize freedom in the same way that men are. And we end up giving away our freedom when we commit. I mean, I, there is some truth to that. She was a hypocrite and did not practice what she preached and was really kind of disastrous with Sartre. But that's another story. But... In a way it is, but in another way, like an example of how we don't really figure it out entirely. But I think that, I think there are different social norms. So I think women are still supposed to be the kind of object of desire, not the subject that has desires. So we will say like, I don't mind. It's okay. It's fine. When that's not what we mean. And, and it feels unsightly to kind of own your position and it, it can feel domineering. How do, if women sort of, as you say, actually it's a quote you use from someone else, sort of um, indoctrinated by society to see their desires as shameful. Mm. Again, I think um, things are getting better. A lot more people are talking about this and writing about this. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, it's had a huge impact. And how do we kind of break out of that? I think that awareness is really transformative. So just paying attention to where these voices come from, where these norms come from, and why you haven't necessarily thought for yourself. Like, why did I not say to these male therapists, I would like to tell you what I want, or actually female therapists as well. Like, there was something in me where it seemed like it would be monstrous. So I, even if I was kind of acting out and being difficult, I still wanted to be liked. And I, I still felt like if I... If I was too greedy, I wouldn't be liked. And I mean, shame comes into all of this. Like, um, you know, you talk about shame. In fact, um, I'm reading and interviewing Natalie Lee, who quotes you a great yes. deal. Um, and and as, as having helped her to understand how shame plays a big role in the sort of um, clamping down on, on, what, on women being able to be free and expressive with their wants. Mm. Oh, she's amazing. We need more people like her. Um, because one of the things that I think does apply, I, but I want to know what you think about this. Women are allowed to kind of want empowerment, but not power. Like empowerment is the ladylike thing that we can have, but power is too kind of bold because it involves other people. And if you're empowered, it's just you, modest you in your life. And what do you think about that? I'm like, do you agree that it's a kind of woman's zone. I, I think that it is changing. I think with all of these things, when it comes to the gender specific um, specificities of, of of the imbalances and being able to be more expressive, I, I do feel that people are changing. I think people like you are writing about these things. I mean, you talk very specifically about, you have a, a chapter about what we are allowed to want, what we shouldn't want and what we should 
Um, and that is when you talk a lot about gender and, and consent, um, you know, and I think that those things being called out, which is what your book is all about in terms of all of the wants and desires, paying attention to them is the way forward. And so you're showing that with those issues around what women want, you know, being able to say what they want around the comp that have been so complicated, but you're expressing them in order, I suppose, to make sense of them so that we can get rid of them. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would say that facing the conflict, like seeing the ways that you might say something but mean another thing, like, and then allowing yourself to change your mind. Because the other thing is that we we get overcommitted, even if we're commitment phobes, we overcommit ourselves to consistency, where we think because we took a position at one point in time, we must forevermore be that way. And I think I think allowing for the twists and turns open something up. So because you got married five years ago and had a baby and thought that you wouldn't have any other wants, that turns out not to be true. Like that, that is something I see a lot of where women will get to a point and it happens to men too, in different ways. Absolutely. But suddenly it's like, how did we not think about this? How did we not see this coming where there's just been a kind of avoidance? So I think allowing yourself to realize that at the time it worked for you and, and now you're somewhere else, you you can see what's possible. It doesn't have to mean radical abandonment. That doesn't mean abandoning your thisness. Abandoning your thisness or your responsibilities, like I think looking at your options and and making your own choices that are kind of congruent with your values. Another one in there, which is so interesting, is create. You talk about create when you talk about one of your clients who thinks she isn't um, at all creative. And you're trying to say, no, you, you are creative. You know, it reminds me of, of sort of Elizabeth Gilbert, various people who say, no, don't be fooled into thinking you're only creative as a young person. Everybody is creative or can be or should be. Is that right? Throughout their lives. If, if they allow it. Yeah. I think we have the creative impulse at any age, but I think we get so embarrassed. Like we're so afraid of feeling foolish. And it's really, it's really an embarrassing desire to have. Like just the word, it can make you wince. I think playful is maybe a little bit more bearable for people. It's less pressure to like achieve something, but we are very afraid of creativity if we're not skilled at it. We're, we're kind of embarrassed to expose how bad we are at something. And I think allowing yourself to to not know how to do something is so joyous. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. You, you say, you know, insist that you can, if you, you know, try and insist to yourself, you can have creative moments every day just by observing and being curious and express yourself imperfectly, change your point of view about an issue. This is what you've been saying. Don't be a perfectionist and um, experience things anew. Wow, I I say a lot. You're such a good reader. You you're so you take in a in a really rich way. It's paying attention. I think that it's it's about noticing details and and starting with something. So we will freak ourselves out by by thinking that we have to be on our gap here, like having some immersive experience. We have to sign up for that pottery class and do it every week or nothing else. Like it becomes this hyperbolic depiction of what it would mean to be creative rather rather than just letting yourself meander or having an experience out in the world i think we can even be creative in how we how we can make the table how we arrange something how we 
go for a walk. And so having an experience can, can be a different creative process. I think conversations are really creative actually when, when we go off script, but I, I feel that staleness. Like when I, when I start trying to, if I'd overly planned every moment of this conversation, it, it loses something creative, but you're not allowing for discovery. Like if everything is planned. So uncertainty is a really important ingredient for creativity. Why, why is it so important for us to make sure of that? I think being surprised and, and being playful, being in motion, it, it's too mechanical if you know exactly what is happening next. Like it's according to a script. It's not going to be spontaneous and, and original. I think that creativity is the way that each one of us expresses who we are. Not to make it too much pressure, because again, work in progress. It can it can just be a doodle. When you um, come to the end of of the book, you know this this thing that I was so fascinated about the sort of difficulty between we want what we shouldn't, and you know, you, well, you say what we should want, what we shouldn't want, and then you also say that we want what's good for us, and we want what's bad for us. Definitely. You know, pain, life and death, good and bad. And these are the contradictions. And I I sort of think that society, again, plays a terrible role in telling yes. us what's good and what's bad for us, because um, surely we should want a bit of what's bad for us, mm. you know, in order to, I suppose, live. And if we are told all the time, this is bad for us, this is bad for us, it creates so many voices in our heads of contradiction. Um, and we want that both. is and it's exciting and good is safe and boring. But I think again, allowing for that contradiction, like I've had so many people say with real shock, why is it that I'm having such good sex with this person who is not a good guy or not a good woman? And there's this kind of horror as though the person you're attracted to is going to be the person who is really, really nice. We're weird, tricky creatures. And I think sometimes you have to kind of recognize those different parts. It doesn't mean you have to act on it again, but allow for it. You have a fascinating glossary and an extraordinary list of words in bold. Are these words that have come up that you've sort of made up or that have come up in, in your clinics with clients? A combination. So again, I mean, that's me being playful. I think play in, in therapy is really important, not in like a silly sandbox way. I mean, that can be great for some, but just allowing for like weird, wacky conversations where I, I have clients who have come up with their own language and can, their own code words for things. And it's like this private bonding thing that happens. You can have it with friends at times when you have a frame of reference or code words. And it's just a way of like making, making life a bit more fun and and saying what hasn't been said. And I, I think therapy can be very kind of turgid and when you're talking about therapy. Like if you go to a therapy convention, there can be a way of trying to kind of play it safe where we hide behind language. And I, I guess, I mean, I'm sure it's outrageous, some of it. Like I talk about, I don't, I don't want to speak to say what what's in there, but I mean, Rumpelstiltskin is a big one for me. Like I, I put a lot of things in there that were so wild because I, I'd i felt so restless from my therapy training and from the kind of restriction of earnestness. And I think it's possible to to just be playful and 
and then discover things in a different way. I mean, therapy does always, and you do with all your clients, I think, you know, go back into their past to work out what it might be in the past that is affecting and impacting upon the present. But when we're trying to think of, you know, this thisness and trying to understand our wants and our needs and desires, is it always necessary to go back into the past to find out what, you know, might have influenced it and gone wrong? Or is that, is that ever not helpful? I mean, as I'm having this conversation, I'm realizing that clearly I don't like being told what to do. And the rules of you must go back, like, no, I mean, I, I think that sometimes we start where we are and I think it should be liberating. I think that having that freedom to meander is going to be expansive. So if you feel like going back, then you can do that, but you don't have a kind of obligation to reduce it to when you were a child and memories and then stay there. I think there's that stuckness that can happen. And having a kind of forward motion is really important. I asked about therapy and whether that was necessary. And the front of the book says we all keep secrets even from ourselves. Mm. One of the things that strikes me is that in our very busy lives, we don't have time, we, we tell ourselves, to self-interrogate, to think about these things. We just go through everything because no one, who has time to sit down and identify their wants and find out which ones are, are kind of wanting and, and figure that all out. Much time can be a problem too. Um, well, time is something that comes up again and again in your book. And, and I suppose in itself, a want of time is a huge overarching want that we all have or to take back time. I'm sure there are many people who can relate to that. But, you know, what, what's your advice for someone who doesn't feel they can go to therapy for sort of maybe financial reasons or whatever it might be mm. to take that time for sort of self-interrogation and, um, you know, to go along with things like reading this book? I think you can always start with five minutes and you can always insist on it by actually putting it in your calendar. And if it's the five minutes when you're also kind of walking to the tube or you are taking a shower, insist on it for those five minutes, like be strict with yourself about protecting that space and, and then go from there, encourage yourself. And it's always possible to do something, but also, don't expect to ever have that total glory when you can kind of just figure it all out because that's too much pressure and it doesn't happen. Do you think wants and desires are cultural? I mean, you're writing for an audience, I suppose, across the world. I don't, I don't know. There's, there's very, it's very culturally specific in, in its way. I mean, I think language can really affect these things. So like Adam Grant will name an emotion in the New York Times and then like everyone is having that emotion. And it, it's interesting to think about where it comes from. I think it's up to us to an extent. Like that's where when it comes to making a choice for yourself as well, like when it came to me making the choice about confidentiality, protecting that and and fictionalizing what I needed to, like you just go with what with what feels right for you. And you don't have to get to the bottom of absolutely everything. You can think about it to an extent and then, and then go from there. So with cultural aspects, like it, we don't ever get away from being socialized to some extent, you might realize the ways you're influenced, but you're not going to kind of become an animal and just be completely unburdened either. I mean, I don't know, maybe some people 
might become that, but it's terrifying. Can I go back um, sort of slightly at, at the end to the beginning and, and just ask, you say, it's a wonderful line, I was struck by the electricity of exploring deep wants. I just wanted to revisit that idea of just to give a sense of the importance of these wants in how it can enhance our lives, because it seems to me such a shame that, you know, you're coming along and saying this, but, you know, why has that been missing from the questions that therapists have been asking or the questions that we've been kind of driven to ask ourselves? Because it's not, well, you don't see, uh, you know, this title or these words on, on that many books. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing that <laughs> it's a problem. I mean, I think we're we're better at looking at what's wrong and like complaining and being critical and being frustrated. But what was it? You had a question as well, like for for the kind of excitement of it. Well, yes, you say that it's a sort of electricity that that you know you were drawn by the electricity of exploring deep wants. And I'm wondering why it's taken you to come along to have to say this, you know, and you've gone through all this time of other people not recognizing just how important it is to explore that. Mm. I, I think we're terrified of ourselves and, and we're afraid that we're going to act really badly if we have any kind of freedom. But yeah, we become sheeple where we, we get very dutiful and and we think that being a grown up means surrendering in that way, like just going along with the shoulds and I think that's when the deadness sets in where I, everything is an obligation. So if, if you find yourself like just obeying, obeying some sense, like you're, you're meeting your friends for dinner, but it's because you should, you're like, if everything is a should, then even if you're doing something supposedly nice, you can, you can be very imprisoned by yourself. So I think that again, just starting somewhere, starting where you are it has a kind of kinetic force as well because it allows you to to be interested and to discover something. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you discover a great deal about these wants because because you quote a huge amount of um, great thinkers great authors great readers so I suppose it's a balance of reading those sorts of people I mean you really do bring a lot of people alive and dead into your book but do your clients ultimately and the explorations that you have sitting with them in the room do they teach you the most completely um and actually one of the real struggles I had with protecting confidentiality was that I don't give them credit and it feels wrong that like they're invisible, but they, they need to be invisible. But I, I've talked about it with them because it feels strange not to say this person really helped me see life in a different way. But yes, I mean, I think if therapists aren't taking something or learning something from their clients, then something is terribly wrong, actually. Like that, the expert thing has gone too far. Somebody um, was asking about that relationship between a therapist and their client, you know, how you keep that in the room. I mean, you talk, for example, a lot. Do you um, let them contact you when you leave or do you uh, 
keep it very much in the room? Do, do you give them the numbers and details? I mean, I I do give them my number. I, I'm fairly relaxed about those things because it doesn't really happen. Like I, I don't really have communications outside of sessions unless it's about scheduling or the odd thing, but it's too strict for me to like not give a phone number. And I think, I think I felt insulted when a therapist didn't give me her phone number. Like she thought I was going to harass her or not handle having her phone number. So I, I think sometimes I'm sure I'm compensating for my own traumas, but I think having it be somewhat equal, even though of course the therapist is offering a professional service, but you're two human beings and, and you can have that kind of collaborative approach. You, I mean, you write um, about, as I said, in great detail about those relationships. Some, you know, you feel that you use the word love towards them and some absolutely exasperate you. Mm. How do you stay, uh, I suppose, impartial? Because you say, you know, you're biased. At one point, I think you describe um, therapists as truffle pigs, kind of sniffling out vulnerabilities. But, you know, how do you sort of create a relationship with someone but also in that very intimate setting, not become biased or not bring your own emotions into the relationship too much. I mean, I I try to notice that I'm doing that. And I I also try to speak up and say something about what's happening, including like, this is awkward. Something is weird. Something has gone wrong. Like saying the difficult thing is usually the thing that needs to be said in therapy. So when I when I find myself avoiding it and like pretending. I think people listening to this, like notice how often you fake it. And it it doesn't mean you can't ever be fake, but like be onto yourself because something gets lost when you do. And if you're constantly faking it, like you start to feel less alive in a way and it gets really boring and it gets really stale and scripted. And that's where therapy, therapy comes alive. Conversations come alive when, when you take a risk and you say something about how you're really feeling. You don't have to say everything, but just a bit that's real, even if it's difficult. I'm really interested just to finish off to to hear how you think wants and desires, the ones that you write about, have been, you know, around throughout the ages. As I said, you draw on great thinkers who are no longer with us, who have extraordinary things to say about power and freedom. But how has, do you think, I mean, particularly the digital modern age of, you know, wanting and having everything that we can get what we want so easily in this day and age? You know, you just, when I was reading your book, I thought, oh, I, I, you know, I want this. And within 20 seconds, I could just click on, um, you know, our wants are so much easier, more easily satisfied, mm. aren't they? And how does that impact on our mental health? I've come to a really provocative, I'm now overusing that word, but it's a strong position in a way that sounds really inflammatory, but I'm I'm kind of pro-despair when it's certain situations. Like I'm pro-despair and pro-giving up and pro-not having too much hope when it's misguided. So like calling it a day in certain areas and and being able to to recognize what isn't ever going to happen and our sense that we're going to be fulfilled like i want a job that's fulfilling sure but it's it's an ideal and it's sort of saying life should deliver fulfillment and i think i think i've had that expectation and we've been promised something that is quite absurd i don't think life is ever actually really enough and 
even as I was writing the book, I kept thinking about enoughness, thinking about satisfaction. It's it's pretty fleeting. Like you have some satisfaction, but you are then going to want the next thing. And it's going to be in motion. And that's because we're alive creatures. Like we're, we're constantly in motion. And if we're not, then there's a kind of stagnation. So I think being okay with pursuing fulfillment, but not actually demanding it. You, you do think that the age of immediacy online and just generally the age in which we're what what we want we get very quickly and very easily if we're living in a certain society do you think that that sort of that messes with these innate wants totally I, I think it's set up the expectation that like we're supposed to be fulfilled like marriage is supposed to be fulfilling it's all supposed to be fulfilling and it's great that we're paying attention to existential issues and we want fulfillment but it's a problem if we think that we're going to kind of arrive and there's no there there. So I think that allowing for that distance is a really expansive, relieving thing. And, that, and sort of perfectionism really tampers with, with that. Yeah. Um, and even in covert ways. So like the, the emotional storage facility that, that we can keep, like we kind of spare ourselves anything in this life but it's all over there like that big yellow storage that's where that's where the good china is that that's where your great furniture is like all of your hopes and dreams and a lot of that is because we just are so afraid that we're going to fail and get it wrong in this life so so we put off our our convictions for life by by thinking that we're going to have the perfect opportunity and yeah i think that making a mess can actually be quite creative and and freeing in that sense too in many ways that makes me think that there's a, a great deal to be said from acting impulsively on your wants rather than analyzing too much and having just said obviously oh there's your brilliant book and there's we need to think about it but how do you you know get that right because often you your gut feeling your impulse about what you want is the one you should pay attention to not the one that's been multi-layered when you've gone through all the things you should and shouldn't well, I think that we can obsess over something without actually thinking about it. And like, we're actually hiding in plain sight. Like we're thinking about nothing else. But if you're, if you're looking at it from every angle, like motion, I think fresh experience is really liberating. And I think like that could be going for a walk and not knowing where you're going to end up or cycling, having, having wind in your face and being in nature or, or just reading something like getting out of your head. So I think, yes, you can think about it for yourself. And then it's that balance of not just being trapped in your own prison. There is so much to go away and think about having spoken to you for an hour and also having read the stories um, in this extraordinary book, a brilliant book. I have um, loved the cover so very much. And of course, it is your publication day to day. So I hope you're celebrating. Very, this is a celebration. <laughs> Yes, exactly. We're celebrating here. And thank you so much, Charlotte. And thank you very much for signing in. Thank you. This episode starred Charlotte Fox Webber and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producers were Esme Bright and myself, and our editor is John Doughty. What We Want is out now from all good bookshops. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>